We are in our second Sunday of Lent, and we are focusing on the cross. So this is our second week looking at that. And the topic for tonight is sin, righteousness, and judgment. Stick for six. Um, So I want to begin tonight by reading you some lyrics from a song by the singer Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, jazz singer from America. She sang this. Southern trees bear strange fruit. It may be that some of you already know what's coming. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in a southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. This song, which is called Strange Fruit, is a song about the lynching of African Americans in the American South. And it's visceral and it's shocking, and I only read you the polite verse. It's shocking because it holds in front of you an image of violence visited on black bodies, an image of persons on whom the ugliness of sin has been displayed. It's the kind of thing that you don't mention in polite society, isn't it? In fact, This song so powerfully confronts you with the abhorrence of this human suffering that the head of the FBI demanded Billie Holiday stop singing it. But as we look at the cross, I think it's a potent image for us to consider because the image of the cross is likewise abhorrent, as Johnny reminded us last week. The cross is as strange as strange fruit. A cross crucifixion is the kind of death that is so barbaric and dehumanizing that it repels your gaze. It's hard to look at. And when we focus on the cross, the ugliness of the picture tells us about sin. The ugliness of the picture tells you about sin. And that, I think, is as true when innocent civilians fleeing down a humanitarian corridor are shelled as it is when black bodies are lynched as it was when Jesus Christ was stripped, flogged, and asphyxiated on a Roman cross. The ugliness of the picture tells us about sin. Sin, I think, can be a difficult concept to get your head around in our day and age, but it's what we're going to focus on this week, and it's worth your attention, even if it's uncomfortable to consider, because it's not possible, in my opinion, to understand why Jesus Christ was crucified without considering the weight of sin. You know, we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, right? It was my sin that held him there. In future weeks, in the coming weeks, we're going to explore how Jesus' crucifixion deals with sin. And honestly, I'm not going to say everything that needs saying, even on this topic tonight. But what I want to do in the few minutes that we do have is to help us to fully recognize the significance of what is going on here, of the, of the deep hope that we have in Christ Jesus by trying to understand for a few minutes the deep brokenness that sin names. 
And that is not easy. I think it's easy for us to feel that something is broken. We all know that, don't we? You can feel it. You can see it. You have to stick your head in the sand not to notice it. But it's easy to be mistaken about what it is that's broken, about what sin is. So I think for most of us, me at least, when we think about sin, we think about sins, all the little things we've done wrong that make us feel guilty or that we judged other people for, whether it was out loud or in the quietness of our hearts so as not to offend them, or if we just tutted at a volume that they wouldn't hear. This makes sense, right? It makes sense to think this way about sin because we see sin's effects damaging people the world over. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. Sin hurts everybody. It hurts those who are victimized, exploited, used, damaged, scorned, and neglected as a result of pride, greed, anger, lust, envy, and self-will. That's true, isn't it? We see that. You know that. You don't need me to prove that to you. But look at Psalm 51 with me again that Laurie read to us. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. What's going on here? Has this psalmist not read Fleming Rutledge? Does he not know that sin hurts everybody? Is the psalmist just naive? Or has the psalmist found some special way to sin only against God? Well, actually, I think this verse brings us to the heart of what it is that is broken. It tells us something really important about sin. Sin exists in relation to God. Sin exists in relation to God. Sin is not just bad acts. Sin is anything that is anti-God. Hear that again. Sin is not bad actions. Little collections of things that we all could agree are naughty and maybe put some laws around to stop people doing it. That's not what sin is. Sin is anything that is anti-God. Anything that sets itself up Against the kingdom of God. That is what sin is. Sin is anything that's anti-God. Ultimately, sin can only be defined in relation to God. Sin is a theological reality. Phone was sinful. Um, Sin is a theological reality, not a moral or ethical reality. It's not just a set of little actions that you can define that we can all agree on. Sin is a theological reality. And this is a fundamental issue if we want to understand sin well, but it's not necessarily a straightforward one. So I want to quickly take you through four biblical pictures that tell us some things about sin. We're going to start with the serpent in Genesis 3. There's so much that you could say about this story and that you could say about sin, that you could say about evil, that you could say about what it means to be fallen. But the point that I want to make tonight, the only point that I want to make tonight from this story, is that the serpent arrives out of nowhere 
Genesis is a book of origins. It tells us about the origins of everything. And God repeatedly declares creation good. But the serpent enters into the story and starts speaking without explanation. It's not even until Revelation 12, which is at the other end of Scripture, that the serpent in this story is associated with Satan. What does this tell us? In the Bible, origin stories are explanations. They tell us why things are the way they are. Sin isn't like that. Sin doesn't have an origin story. It's not created and therefore it's not good. It doesn't have a why. There's no why. Ultimately, if you drill down as far as you can go into evil, there is no why. There's not a point. Sin doesn't make sense. It's a lack. It's a gap. It's an incoherent and parasitic unreality. But just like a black hole, this doesn't mean that it doesn't have force. Next picture, Genesis 4. The next story in the Bible is actually the first occurrence of the term sin in Scripture as we have it. When God tells Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you, but you must master it. In this picture, sin is a crouching demon. Sin is a malevolent force. It's a power. It's not a set of actions. It's got, an, it's got a mind of its own. And it wants to master you. Which brings me on to my third picture in Romans 7. It's an internal enslaver. Sin is not just at work in the world outside the door. It's not just crouching at the door. But Paul writes about it being at work in your very body for the purpose of enslaving you. In Romans 7, he describes struggling with sin. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. He goes on to call himself a prisoner of sin, a slave to sin. What does this tell us? Sin is not a moral category into which some acts fall and some acts don't. And if you're strong enough, you can stay over here away from it. Sin is a malevolent power that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And it does this by getting on the inside of you. It's at work within you. You can't judge the sinner over there because we're all in the same storm here. We're all complicit in the brokenness. There's no neutral standpoint. And the Bible takes this all the way to its logical but horrible conclusion. In Isaiah 64 verse 6, it writes, We are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a filthy menstrual rag in your sight. That's not a pretty picture. A used tampon. That's the status of your efforts at righteousness and justice. 
Sin infects everything. Your efforts at righteousness and justice are the acts that we think belong in this camp. Right? The happy one. The things that are not naughty. Sin infects everything. It's not just the naughty things that you do. Sin is not a moral or ethical category. It's not bad acts. It's anything that's anti-God. And apparently, according to the Bible, according to Isaiah, not me, even our own religious efforts can belong here. And if you think that's just the Old Testament, who does Jesus clash with most? People in pulpits. Religious authorities. What is sin? Okay, from these pictures, what do we learn that sin is? Sin is an incoherent, malevolent force that gets on the inside of you and infects everything you do. That, that's why Jesus goes to the cross. Because this incoherent, irrational, illogical, perverting power is stealing, killing, and destroying people from the inside out. And I mean that figuratively, but I also mean it literally. It's sin that sees strange fruit hung up on southern poplar trees in the US. From crucifying, lynching, and shelling through to the pride which twists a person in on themselves, or the lust which enslaves their energies, or the gossip that pulls the rug out from under their relationships. Sin is an anti-God unreality that warps and distorts the good creation God intended. And God hates it. It was my sin and yours that held him on that cross. He had to overcome it. You okay? You've survived the sin onslaught. We're going to talk about judgment and righteousness next. It'll all be uphill from here. In future weeks, in the coming weeks, we'll unpack a little bit about how Jesus' death deals with sin. But I want to use the time we have left today to say something more about why it needs dealing with in this way. Why crucifixion? So the opposite of sin is righteousness. The opposite of sin is righteousness, which is God's alignment of things in right relationship with him. And that is why it's so scandalous for Isaiah to say it's your righteousness which is unclean. Ultimately, God's loving kindness is going to prevail in establishing righteousness. The kingdom of God will come in its completeness, but it cannot and it will not coexist with sin. Sin is everything that is anti-God in the world and God's righteousness cannot coexist with it. God's not going to cut a deal. The cross is necessary because God is establishing righteousness. And you know by now, because you've made it through the sin onslaught, that you can't deal with sin just by outlawing certain actions because sin is not a moral category. It's not an ethical category. It's not just a set of naughty deeds that we could all agree on. Because sin is defined in relationship to God, God has to do something to resolve it. And because sin is an anti-God theological reality, 
God has to empty himself and become like us in order to do something about it. That's why God becomes man in Jesus Christ. And Christ goes to the cross because what God does with sin is judge it. I don't know about you. I don't know how you feel hearing that word. I don't know about you, but I used to hate that idea. I hate the thought of someone preaching judgment at me. Honestly, I used to be petrified of the idea that my pet sins might be known about by God. I think one of my most operative prayers was probably, God, please don't look at me for a minute. I used to hate the idea of my pet sins being known about by God. And by the merest hint that anyone else could find out about them, if the judgment after death is public, that was terrifying as a prospect. The idea of judgment was scary to me even if I accepted it as an important part of what the Bible says. And maybe for you, it's a bit different. Maybe you're less scared, more ambivalent. Maybe your, your reasoning goes more like this. God's definitely seen worse people. God had to judge Hitler too, so I will probably be okay. Maybe you've even adapted your theology to downplay the idea of God as a divine judge in favor of emphasizing God's mercy and ended up arguing for something that looks more like excusing sin than judging it. I talked about that in the past tense. It's not very long in the past. The thing that changed my perspective was witnessing war in Ukraine. And it changed it a lot more quickly than I'd like to admit. And this change happened in my prayers. Because what changed for me is I've started to actually long for God to judge sin. I've started to ask him to judge sooner. I've started to pray with urgency, perhaps for the first time, that God would rouse himself, that God would stir, that God would listen and hear and not delay, that God would get up, that God would defend the widow and the orphan, especially the newly widowed and the newly orphaned. If this is really who God is, I've started to pray that God would be that God that God would judge. I've started to ask him the perennial question of the Psalms, how long? How long, God? What's happening? What's happening in that? I wonder if, I wonder if watching a war unfold via a newsfeed has held the ugliness of sin viscerally before my eyes and shaken my complacency. Yeah, because the right response to the suffering and to the atrocities that we've seen unfolding is emphatically not indifference. Indifference is not the right response. And I don't believe indifference is God's response either. I think... Honestly, I think the right response is indignation. I think it's outrage. I think it's anger and grief at the depravity of the suffering that humans are capable of inflicting on one another. Other species don't have wars. <laughs> you know what? I look at, I look at it. I, honestly, honestly, I pray like this because I don't think that I can quite deal with it. Right? Maybe I'm just in shock. Who knows? But there are some things 
that can't go unpunished. I think what's happened here for me is that I've empirically verified the doctrine of sin again. I've watched it, and I've felt it, and I can see it, and it's been held in front of my face, and I can't get away from it. And actually, sin is really, really bad. I've been roused from the comfortable assumption that we might just be able to do away with the idea that that God needs to come and judge. And so in prayer, what does this look like for me? This looks like taking the Psalms as my model and hurling this anger at God. I've prayed unbalanced prayers like Psalm 83. Oh God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, oh God. Be not still. See how your enemies, your enemies are astir. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation. Was there ever a prayer written for a moment? Make them. <laughs> oh, it's not politically correct. Make, make, the, make Russian forces, God. Make them like tumbleweed, oh my God. Like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountain ablaze. Pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame. Cover their faces with shame. I know we're supposed to pray for our enemies, but God, I want you to blow some stuff up. It's that kind of a prayer. And what I think is astonishing about God's judgment is that he, his response to that, his response to that is to suck up all the hate, Putin's and mine, and to take it on himself. He becomes sin in order that we can become the righteousness of God. The cross is necessary because God's righteousness prevails. His kingdom is coming, but it cannot and it will not coexist with sin. God's love is experienced as wrath wherever we find ourselves, wherever you find yourself under the power of sin. And God's justice is the name for his implacable opposition to sin. Whatever is anti-God, whatever is anti-kingdom in the world and in your life, whether it's within your control or outside of it, divine judgment is required. There are some things that cannot go unpunished. But what God does is he takes that punishment into his own heart in Jesus Christ rather than visit it on, his, on people. Instead of blowing stuff up, God judges sin in Christ and finds a way to make the world right. That's our faith. The cross is the site of divine judgment. And this is astonishingly good news. Why? God does not excuse either war crimes or affairs or bullying or gossip or lust run rampant. God doesn't excuse any of it. He doesn't allow one iota of sin to escape. He's going to judge it all. 
and he's going to free the world from it. When Jesus returns, sin will be no more. Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye, and the Lord himself will be their light. He's going to judge and condemn and utterly rout it all. Death will be defeated, and Christ will be all in all. And this is the case because of the cross, because Jesus came, because he became obedient to death. Even death is a strange fruit, hanging from a tree, torn apart by a baying mob. Even a death that demonstrates with visceral force the worst that sin could throw at a person. He takes it all on himself. Takes it all on himself, and God judges sin in Christ. God took sin, the anti God, into himself and triumphed over it. The ugliness of the picture, the ugliness of the cross, tells us about sin, but the fact of the cross tells us that God's love runs deeper than that. God's love runs deeper than that. Sin doesn't win. And it's this deep love, this deep love of God for us that makes it worth praying in the first place. It's a vulnerable thing to entrust your deepest angers and hatreds to God and to invite him to judge them. It's a, it's a vulnerable thing to name before God the ways in which sin is impacting you and to entrust them to him to judge. It's, a, it's God's deep love that enables us to trust God with our sin. It underpins the admission of sin in Psalm 51. Verse 1 reads like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. God, I can trust you because your love runs so deep. Will you come and obliterate sin in me? I want to be free from it. God, I can trust you because your love runs so deep. I hand over the things that are out of my control that have happened to me that I've been complicit in, that I don't want to bear the effects of. Will you come and judge sin in me? Blot out transgression. Destroy sin. It's the way that God shows his overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love that highlights sin for what it really is. An abomination with no place in a good creation and no place in your life. love it if the, um, if the musicians could prepare to lead us again. And I just want to, I want to close with an invitation to you.
God hates sin. God hates sin. And what this means for you is that he wants to see you utterly free of its every impact. Whether you did it or it was done to you, he wants to see you free of that. That is what Jesus won for you in his life, death, and resurrection. Freedom. And the invitation to you today, same as last week basically, is to enter into this strange cross. And I think that that, I think that that is wonderful as an invitation, but I think that it can be scary and I think that it can be uncomfortable because it means coming honestly before God and inviting him to judge sin in you. Coming honestly before God and inviting him, according to his unfailing love, to blot out your transgressions, to destroy sin's impact on your life. And the Lord is present to heal, to heal the effects of sin. in bodies and in souls.